The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Hi Sanctumers, it's Kate Sear. Welcome to another edition of the fifth quarter. This week I'm joined by an absolute pioneer of women's sport in Australia, the one and only Shiloh Curtis. Shiloh is an absolute force of nature. She is the former director of the National Female Academy of the AFL, the former female football development manager of AFL Victoria, and most recently she had a stint as the senior manager of female engagement at Golf Australia. She's an expert in diversity and inclusion. She was herself a former elite footballer, a coach, and she's now a well-regarded commentator. I love listening to Shiloh every week on the wireless and on the TV. Let's give her a call. Hello. Shiloh, hi, it's Kate. Kate, so good to hear from you. I miss seeing I miss seeing you and I miss talking to you. Likewise, I know we haven't seen each other for so long. It's been a really challenging couple of years. How are you going? I'm amazing. I'm amazing, certainly, uh, especially that footy's back and it's really nice to kick off the year. We got it a month early, so than usual, that is. So it's a really good start to the year. Yeah, that's true. So round one is done and dusted and you've been commentating several of the games and obviously keeping a very close eye on everything that's happening. What what was your reaction to the first round? What surprised you the most? I'm probably going to say Geelong's performance against North Melbourne. I knew they were going to be a lot more competitive than they have been previously. There's been some some important list turnover, some good young players coming in, obviously Chloe Shear and the opportunity to bring in Georgie Presparkis, Nina Morrison back from that, you know, that sort of horrific run of injuries. So they're three really great ins, but there's a big difference to bringing new players into the team and getting everyone to be able to deliver as a group. I thought the way in which they played their football over the weekend was fantastic, especially against a side like North Melbourne, you know, which has great depth in every zone. So, yeah, I think they surprised me the most, but I was really delighted for them and just really happy and joyful to see them play the style of footy they did and really happy for Meg Mack and because of her leadership, what she's been trying to create within that group. Just really great to see some reward for effort. Yeah, it was. It was a great game, actually, and and it surprised me too. I think a year ago we wouldn't have imagined Geelong going quite so well against North, so um, that was lovely to see. You mentioned injuries there, Shiloh, and it's unfortunately been the topic that's on the tips of everyone's lips this week. Uh, Three of our most accomplished players are out with ACL injuries and others sustain some injuries that will see them out for the next couple of weeks. Do you have a theory on what's going on here, and is there any way that it can be addressed within the course of this very short season? And look, I'm not look. I'm not a sports scientist or a medical or anything like that. I guess there are some factors, and if we, you know, there's always a comparison with men and the men's experience. It's very hard to compare like for like. We do know that women have, you know, are at greater risk because of how our bodies are structured uh, around ACL injuries. So we know that there's plenty of evidence around that. But yeah, there's quite a significant. Um, there's significant differences when the competitions are held winter versus summer and the harder grounds. And even when men had a spate of ACL injuries quite a number of years ago, now probably a couple of decades ago, there was a lot of conversation around hard grounds and the impact of facilities like Marvel Stadium, for instance. Um, and there was a lot of pushback on, on, on the grounds being too hard. And so we're playing women's footballs being played over the summer. I don't know what the surface, I guess the surface tension and so on is like, 
can't comment on that, but it is a question. If we think about the last couple of years and the level of preparation and the stop-start nature of all the experiences that the athletes have had, new athletes coming in through the VFL and, and, and even the under-18, under-19 competition, there's not been a lot of consistency. So I can imagine it's been challenging and there are a number of factors that need investigation. The issue, Kate, is we don't have the information because the research hasn't been done. Why hasn't the research been done? Well, we've never really wanted to invest in researching women's bodies ever. (laughs) Um, And certainly in a sporting context, Australian football context, there's never been an appetite to do this research until very recently when the AFLW came to light. And I certainly know that Jane Cooper, myself, Julia Price, Libby Sadler, we were working within the system that um, prior to AFLW was certainly advocating for, you know, research money to be spent on the prevalence of women's injuries because there was just no information that we had and anything we had we had to call upon international research in different sporting codes like soccer and basketball and so on so I guess the players that are in the system now they're not the beneficiaries yet of long-term actions that have been implemented based on good long-term research that's been done on how on how to prevent and how to rehab because we know women women's bodies are different and also what those bodies are expected to do and the conditions that they're expected to do them in are very different from the male conditions. So there's a number there's a number of factors there, Kate, and we just don't have enough information, I, I guess. But the good thing is that that has shifted and there's you know there's early research that's been done. Um, it's starting to filter out. You know, the NABLEAD girls, they're all doing, you know, knee injury prevention work in their preparation, and that's really fantastic. It's just going to take some time for there to be a long history of girls and, and, and young women getting that level of development. And I think even that information needs to filter back to community clubs and doing knee injury prevention work at community clubs because it might even be more important in some ways because they only they rock up for training a couple of times a week. You know, they play on the weekend. There's not a lot of medical support and so on at community club level. I think we just got to invest in learning more about women and how we and how we roll in the world and, and make sure that we provide the necessary resources and information and support that we need to thrive. And as you said, it's not just a phenomenon that's that's exclusive to women's footy or to women's sport. You know, the kind of historic lack of research on women's health needs and so on generally is uh, is a huge issue. So let's hope, as you say, that it gets addressed as we or continues to get addressed as we go forward. Uh, I just want to ask you a question about this season and the the impact that the coronavirus is having on the season. We we, we have players who are having to sit out because they're COVID positive or because they have been in close contact with somebody who has COVID and they're out for precautionary reasons. How do you coach for that? How do you possibly, as a coach, maintain team structure, coherence, motivation, morale, etc.? Probably your most important asset I would say right now is your team psychologist. Really working on, on the resilience of the athletes to navigate the uncertainty, being able to cope with the agility of life at the moment. Yes, I think the team that win the, wins the premiership will be physically the least injured, but also emotionally and psychologically the most thriving. I think that's really critical. I'll probably speak to Queens of Brisbane's example last year, you know, really shielded from the COVID experience last year. Whereas the Victorian teams, you know, we all had to live through it in Melbourne. We've gone through extensive, lock, you know, that big lockdown in 2020. I think coming back into this season, Victorians have experienced the same thing again. It's been two years of, you know, world record 
locked up in our homes. So in terms of our bandwidth and our and our overall emotional intelligence and our overall emotional capacity to cope with more pressure and stress, that's going to be a really critical skill that all athletes are going to need at the back end of the season to still be thriving. And I think that's for all of us, to be honest, Kate. We all yeah. need that. I think the people that are the most internally equipped to navigate the uncertainty are going to be the ones that thrive at the end of COVID rather than just tread water. And I think that's so that for me, that's really critical. And you just got to roll with the punches. You look at what GWS had to navigate last year and the leadership of Alan and McConnell and Gail, their wellbeing person up there and Alicia Eva and her leadership, you know, being able to roll with the punches, you know, and roll with whatever life gives you. And the team that adapts to the changing conditions is going to be the one that kicks goals quicker. I think if you spend a lot of time throwing your arms in the air and cracking it that you're in lockdown again or this has happened or we're not playing our home game at home, we're playing at Whitnoval on the weekend. If you spend and expend all that energy, that emotional energy, not being happy about the things you don't have, you can't really capitalise and seize on the things you do have. That is going to be the main factor for teams working through this season, ones that can really maximise what they do have. I'm Chelsea Randall and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. I want to turn now, Shiloh, to reflect on some bigger issues sitting around the game. You're always such a great person to speak to about so much that's happening around sport. I want to start with something that unfolded late last year, and that is that we learned that clubs were no longer going to do skinfold tests for the male players before they were drafted. And there was quite a bit of backlash to that announcement. And I know that you had a strong reaction to this and you tweeted about it. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on that decision? Yeah, look, and I'll speak as someone with lived experience of, of managing an eating disorder my whole my whole adult life I, I, you know I, I identified that I had an eating disorder when I was in year 11 and had to navigate bulimia and still do I don't think it's something that ever goes away the the prevalence of, of such issues is is so great and I think we know that women are highly affected by eating disorders but we also know that there's growing prevalence for men and, and, and young men and boys around their perception of their bodies and their self-esteem and the like. I've always struggled to understand the correlation between body fat percentage and performance. Uh, many, many years ago, um, you know, I had a, a relationship with someone who was a high-performing athlete in another sport and they skinfolded those athletes all the time and, you know, at certain times throughout the year. And I would watch that person's emotional state just decline and the misery that that person experienced in the lead-in to that time it was really challenging and really hard to watch and I still really struggled to see how how the skin folding gave a great indication of, of of that person's ability to perform or any athlete's ability to perform I guess my view has always been if all the other testing components that are around your physical performance you know your 2k time trials going up your agility is great your vertical leaps awesome your beat testing or your yo-yo results are fantastic you know your bench press is a phenomenal if all your other physical fitness indicators continue to trend up why do you need to know what your skin fold is for me skin folding reeks of fear power and control over athletes to get them to perform at a certain level and I think with my personal philosophy around leading people and leading young people coaching athletes and certainly when I was the female football development manager at AFL Victoria and running the under 18 high performance system there was no way in the world I would have ever skin folded our girls because I just didn't see it to be relevant or helpful 
you know, I didn't want those young women ending up with eating disorders because I understood how easy it was to tip people over the edge. And in fact, I, I shifted the language. I spoke to all of our coaches and support staff and, and, and instructed them, you are never to comment on people's bodies and what they look like. And I don't even want you to say, geez, you look really fit. You know, talk about, oh, you're, you know, your, your testing results indicate that you're really fit. So shift your language because language is powerful, but remove words that say, I'm looking at you so that the athletes didn't feel that their physical appearance was something that was being scrutinised and that they felt pressure about. And I spoke to the players as well about it. Many of those young women are now AFLW players. And I spoke to the women, those young women as well at the time, and I said, we just ban these words and we don't do this because I don't care what you look like. What I care about is your performance, like your work rate, your process. And if everything else trends up, who cares what you look like? That was really critical. My view is if you have to use fear, power and control to motivate your athletes, I think it's a short-term quick fix to try and get short-term outcomes. But if you want to build long-term sustained commitment and motivation and performance, you've got to dangle carrots and not use fear, power and control to get and shame to get your athletes moving forward. There are plenty of other ways to motivate your athletes that don't harm, don't cause harm or don't cause further harm. Unfortunately, particularly for people within the male system, haven't had to navigate a lot of these body issues historically. And I don't think there's ever, maybe there's not been a lot of really positive role modelling about how to motivate your athletes without using fear, power and control. I think it's a new, newer thing and you do see it coming into coaching. If you look at some of the ways in which, you know, top-level coaches have, you know, speak, speak with openness and vulnerability and care and compassion for their athletes, there's this new emergence of, of of this beautiful loving style of coaching and we saw it quite organically with Luke Beveridge and then it's really constructed and with what we've seen with say Damien Hardwick for instance and there's elements to his coaching that you know he really loves and cares about his players and I think there's starting to become this appreciation that it's not fear power and control that we need it's love care support empathy nurturing safety psychological safety and we know that if people feel psychological, psychologically safe, that's your number one component you need in any kind of team environment, workplace, sport or otherwise, to get high-performing outcomes. And so why wouldn't you use that? When you tweeted about this last year, Shiloh, I, I was reminded, and this might sound a bit, oh, well, it tells you a little bit about, about me. I was reminded that I have a plastic tumbler at home that's a Buddy Franklin <laughs> tumbler, which I've had for, you know, 15 years or so, back from when he played at Hawthorne. It's still going, although it's a, it's been, been battered in the dishwasher a bit. But my tumbler has his date of birth, his height, and his weight, among some other stats. And this is a this is a sort of related debate that I see happening within the footy space, whether we need to know the weight of players. Why would we? I certainly think it does need to be spoken about in a commentary context. There's value for coaching. So when you do your matchups, okay, this player weighs X kilos, so we need to get someone who's thereabouts, you know, so you don't end up with a mismatch. I do think strategically or tactically there's there's value in knowing that information. You know, and even when I commentate, I might say that someone's outsized or they've been outbodied or, gee, she's stronger, she's stronger through the shoulders, you know, she's, how is that player going to do this because there's clearly a mismatch. And so you might comment on the, I guess, on the on the physicality of the contest, but I think you choose your words really carefully. Yeah, and I think that, so I think that's really important that you're really mindful of how, of the words you use, how they can be perceived, who else might be listening to those words. 
And I, you know, I, it's not just the person. If there's a comment made about someone's body to someone about their weight, their size, that play, you might, I might go, Kate, geez, you look bloody amazing. You know, you've lost, oh yeah, if you lost weight, you look awesome. You might go, oh, yeah, actually, I've been in a real fitness kick. Thanks. And that might make you feel good, like you're getting some validation for, I guess, the effort that you've put in to, to get yourself healthy, healthier or whatever it might be. But there's someone else that might be listening that hears that conversation and goes, oh, gee, Charlotte didn't say that to me. Yeah. Uh, what does she think I look like? And so I think if we just eradicate any of the conversation around valuing what people look like and start to value what they do, then we create a healthier environment that doesn't do any harm. Why would you want to do something that causes harm? You've talked there, Shiloh, a bit about your approach to commentary. You've been a pioneer in commentating footy. And as you know, I love listening to you. And it's so great to have you back on the airwaves and on our TV screens this season. You've been involved in the last uh, year or two in the Making uh, the Call initiative, which was developed by our very own Emma Race and Lucy Race. And that's a program that's designed to encourage more women commentators into sport, not just AFL, but sport more broadly. We're seeing a lot of these women get an opportunity now and hearing some new voices. I've heard women commentating cricket and uh, AFLW and other sports for the first time in the last few months. From the position that you sit in as somebody who's been involved in commentary for a long time, do you feel that this is changing the way that the sport is analysed, understood by members of the public and so on in any way to have these new voices coming in? What's it feel like from where you're sitting? Oh, it feels really wonderful to have lots of other emerging female commentators and play-by-play callers that I get to work with. It's really inspiring and, you know, it feels less isolating and alone. If you think back to when we first started, you know, I got an opportunity to get involved in, in commentary both um, with a TV and radio broadcaster. And But I was surrounded by people that were seasoned professionals, you know, media professionals, Andy Mark, Kelly Underwood, Elle Nicholson, you know, Damien McIver, like people that I just oh, there's daylight and then some between me and all of you and I'm just such an amateur and I felt really lonely and isolated and scared a lot of the time. And it's probably taken probably until last year to feel like I'm good enough to be there, taken me sort of five years. You know, funnily enough, I felt like I had my best best performance last year because I just felt like finally I belonged in that space. And I was less alone though because there were so many more female voices coming through and There are many younger or emerging or less experienced women coming through the ranks that, you know, the broadcasters are investing in and spending time on and they've seen this opportunity that making the call have done and, you know, tried to replicate it or using the talent that's come out of it. And that's just really wonderful that there's this encouragement of women to come through. And absolutely, we see the game in, in different ways. And those women who have played the game, we understand how the women's game is executed. We don't constantly make comparisons to the men's game. We don't need to because it's about analysing the performance that's in front of you in relation to itself. There's that element. And I think, you know, our lived experience as women, the gendering and culturing that we've all had, you know, maybe there are different things that we seek from our commentary and different narratives. And I think probably the the conversation we had around body image and the, the words and the language we use when we call, you know, I'm really careful about that stuff. I think it's much easier for me to put myself in the shoes of that woman that's on TV or that's out on the field playing. You know, I feel like I've, as a woman, I've got lived experience of that. And so I can I can bring empathy to that situation. I think there's even scope, you know, for women behind the camera. You know, what shots do you take? Or as a producer, you know, which images do you bring to the TV screen so that it's a flattering image, not something that she's going to look at and go, oh, God, 
I wish they didn't take that photo, you know, stuff that, that, that might make them feel uncomfortable. So I think all of those things are really important. And when you start to bring diverse voices and diverse experiences into the, to all facets of media, I think we'll start to get calls and, 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 a, and a performance of the game in a media context. We'll start to get a performance that's more representative and empathic and supportive of the needs of those athletes so that they're represented in a way that helps them to thrive. And I believe wholeheartedly that the commentary of women's sport will influence and is influencing the commentary of men's sport. So that I think um, is also an important dimension. Shiloh, you recently left sport. You've been working in the sporting context in diversity and inclusion for many years and have moved into the not-for-profit sector. Is there anything that you think now that you're outside of the sporting context, sporting organisations can learn from not-for-profit organisations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think there's always opportunities to learn from different contexts and environments. I do think sport's a bit siloed, it's a bit tunnel visioned, it's a bit narrow, and even sporting codes can be very much like that, that they only consult within their own sport. If someone's from outside their sport, well, that, 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 that opinion is less valued or we may be less likely to take it on. And then I think within a sporting context, there's so much that you can learn from other sectors and you know, how can sport learn from the agile methodology in the IT sector, for instance? You know, the charity or not-for-profit sector, you know, has members and has volunteers. That's really similar to a sporting club, isn't it, and a high-performance sporting club or a community club. So surely member engagement, volunteer engagement, recruitment, incentive, incentives, value-adding, those things are really transferable. And in terms of leadership and, and getting the best outcomes from your people, absolutely there's a lot of leadership lessons that, that transcend that that transcend uh, the industry that you work in. What I, what I worry about in a sporting context is that we're a little bit too insular, insular, that we don't go seeking, actively go seeking learning and growth from other sectors. And I think the nature of sport, which is about trying to win, like everything is about, ultimately it's about the Premiership Cup, you know. Um, but if you're truly successful, the Premiership Cup is a byproduct of success. Why? Because your processes are awesome, your work rate's great, and how you lean into challenges. You get excited by the challenges. You, you're seeking things that you don't yet know. You're seeking the mistakes that you make so that you can shift them and improve them, that you're trying to get even better. That's what success is, Being having the courage to look yourself in the mirror and go, hmm, can do better there and then acting on that that's the real definition of success for me that's growth mindset but if we constantly judge ourselves by a scoreboard outcome we become very fearful of external reflections on our performances on what we do and how we do it so we can be very protective I think there's a lot of danger in always trying to be the winner there's not as much learning in winning as there is in losing and I think that's where the goal is sport I think sometimes can be too concerned about hiding the things it's not good at and it doesn't get to maximise what it could be. It misses out on those opportunities to learn and grow. And I think other sectors, other industries can help sporting organisations navigate that self-development space and be better. My last question for you, Shiloh, was I was going to ask you if it's possible to tip a premier in this season but given what you've just said <laughs> about how it's not all about the premiership I'm going to dump that question throw it in the bin and ask you a different one and that is what for you would success look like in AFLW season six that we stop talking about how the standard's gone up <laughs>
I don't give a stuff about the standard of football. You know what? Because I'm investing in what? Because that, that conversation is about scarcity. It's about it's about perpetuating the not enough culture, isn't it? I'm going to invest in what we have got, and you know, certainly in COVID times. You know, there's a lot of stuff we don't have anymore, temporarily or permanently. So I'm really leaning into what I do have. And I'm going to just enjoy the contest that's in front of me and the experiences, the moments that are in front of me. Success looks like the players loving what they do, the players feeling invested in. When the crowd goes to the game, they just feel joy and happiness because that's what sport should be about, bringing, you know, collective joy that people find a place in the world for themselves through the AFLW in some capacity, whoever you are in the community, whether you're a broadcaster, whether you're a fan, a coach, a player, a parent of a player or a girl aspiring to or a woman who's older who looks at the AFLW and never got to play but feels a level of redemption because those women are playing and she's playing vicariously through them. That for me is success, that the AFLW provides a a platform that people can realise who they are and live live out their own authentic live out their yeah live out their own authenticity through that and i think that's really powerful that's the power of sport it's not to be the performance but it's the thing that can sustain and support and be the foundation of the individual performances of every single community member and that's the power of sport to be the foundation that everyone else stands on to become even better in what they do in their lives we need some joy right now, don't we, Shiloh, in our lives at the moment, as you say, and AFLW is giving us heaps of that. So that's a lovely note to finish on. Shiloh Curtis, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on The Outer Sanctum. Thank you for sharing all of your insights, for sharing all of your experiences, and I can't wait to hear you over the next few weeks out there calling those games. Go out and enjoy it. Thanks, Kate, and go for it.